0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100Bogart.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary, and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated – every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition pizza pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love. All for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you.
2: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman on her journey through life, to, which takes us to incredibly interesting places, emotional places, hard places, and sometimes some really fun places. Today, there's going to be, yes, that journey, but also some really delicious, incredible food. So today my guest is Kim Alter. She is the owner of a restaurant called Nightbird and a bar next door called Linden Room. And she does an ex- incredible tasting menu. And welcome, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here. <laughs> um, I'm fascinated by the tasting menu because so often, um, well, so often I rebel against the tasting menu. That's first. We could talk about that. But that right now you're investigating colors. And I, I think of your your food is incredibly sensual, which is engaging so many senses at once. So I'd love to just hear What type of thinking goes into each of the senses in your tasting menus? Well, I mean... When I think about writing a menu uh, right
3: away, I mean, the number one is deliciousness, obviously. Uh, we always have a theme like colors, and you know we kind of want to have a story that people can follow along with. But thinking about each course and
2: having that acidity, that crunch, that brightness, the freshness. So you've worked with um, Jeremy Fox at Ubuntu and David Kinch at Manresa, which would definitely put you in the heavy, veg- heavy vegetable zone. Yes. Uh, tell me about colors. How did you come up with that idea? Actually, I guess it's
3: pride. So well, that's that's part of it, but definitely, I mean, it kind of stemmed from a menu I was gonna do with about my mom, about her losing her vision. It was originally gonna be all white, and I um, really liked the idea of the whole like monochromatic, um, all colors, and then the rainbow June being you know in San Francisco and 100% supporting all people. We were like, let's apply that to it. And just there's so many beautiful colors at the farmer's market right now with all the flowers and the vegetables. And I was like, this is going to be easy. And it actually came together in a few days of just like going to the markets and grabbing things and applying like saffron to scallops, um, you know, covering the red part of the beef with truffles so it looks brown and, you know, green powders. I mean, there's just so much to work with right
2: now. So why don't you take me through some of the colored dishes because you just gave us like a little tidbit exactly little tidbits but I'm so curious uh when you do the the colors menu are you going chromatically through colors so in each course it's a color
3: yes so like the first course right now is orange and we took scallops marinated them in a saffron vinaigrette and then got carrots smoked them shaved them raw um, we have nasturtium flowers and calendulas and um, just beautiful kind of covering it and then a little bit of uh, nasturtium greens that we blanch with oranges. So you can't see it, but it just looks like bright and orange and beautiful when it comes to your, your table. And then fermenting carrots and turning it into juice for our reflection course and then making a carrot miso, dehydrating it, and putting it on a fermented oat chip is like the thought process of the, the second uh, step, which is still a continuation of being orange and then what comes next uh green i wanted to do like red yellow like a rainbow but it just it didn't with you know squab ends up being red on our dish and that wouldn't be a very good starter so uh, it went into green and we uh, butter poach halibut and then we cover it in green zucchini uh raw and roasted and um then make a green powder out of parsley and chives and then all these greens we grow or forage um kind of just all on top and then a green garlic broth gets poured over it with uh, some pickled and confit green garlic so it just Really light. We used a smoked goat way in the green garlic broth to kind of break up the bitterness that it might um, have, and so it's just sweet and kind of luscious. And next? Would be the reflection, and we actually went into yellow, so we took yellow zucchini, um, kind of steamed it, rolled it, and then took fermented uh, green garlic and the scraps from the zucchini and made a puree and did little dots with some leek blossoms and uh, pickled green garlic. Wow.
2: Let's go back to the uh, origin you were thinking of doing an all-white menu um, because of your mother losing her eyesight. So tell me your um, tell me about your mom and uh, and what happened with her eyesight. Yeah, my mom is my hero. She's
3: 100% supported me forever. And um, when I talk about her losing her vision, it was one of those things that it, it took a progression of about five years. And I I honestly didn't really know until. She literally couldn't drive. Um, she couldn't see me. Her, it's called Fuchs' dystrophy, and it was, she could see color a little bit, but it was blurry. Like she, if I was standing in front of her, she wouldn't know it was me, but she could, she couldn't cut her own food. We had to take her to the restroom and she's a really independent woman. Like instead of using a cane, she would walk with her husband and count how many steps it took to get to her job and then she would walk it by herself. And, I would yell at her because I'd be like, what if somebody hits you because they don't see that you're blind and you're not using? She just, you know, she resisted. Um, that sounds very
2: scary. Yeah. I mean, to be <laughs> exactly. the, the child of someone who's that, that fiercely independent. Yes.
3: No, no, for sure. And uh, when I, this was also around the time the restaurant Nightbird was going to be opening and I was, you know, just really wanted to think about how can she experience this restaurant? She's gone to all of my restaurants. She loves them. Um, it's, she's, so proud. She's like my own PR person. You know, she is just my biggest supporter. So I just started thinking about how could I do a menu where it's with your hands and a broth that maybe you put your face over and you smell and then you pick up and everything was one color. Um, And after thinking about the all white, I mean, I was really stressed out when we were opening the restaurant. I just realized I'd be opening in a time where there would be more, more things than just turnips and root vegetables. So I wanted to still make sure it was delicious. So we did a little bit, kind of like the colors menu, but it was more browns and beiges and whites. And um, we did like a scallop dish with shaved turnips that we put on top. So it just looked like a white um, circle on the plate. And then we poured like a brown butter of over it. So it all tasted delicious. And to somebody not blind, it would be just a beautiful, kind of like a flower. Um, But to my mom, it just looked like a white circle. Um, And then throughout the process of the two years we were opening she fell on those lists to get an experimental surgery. And uh, I think three weeks before we opened, she had the surgery and was able to see again with 20 20 vision in one eye, because they do one eye at a time. And uh, she was able to come to the restaurant. So then the dessert turned into a very bright, vibrant beauty. You know, it was covered in white, but when you cl- cracked into it, it was just flowers and pinks and, you know, all the colors that we could possibly do. And uh, it was called. Um, insight is what we called it and uh, she uh, came and just cried and really enjoyed it and people I we had some people come back every week we ran it for four weeks and uh, every week they came just because they really loved the
2: story that went along with it and it it's it's a good one (laughs) so when you were thinking about white and you ended up with whites and browns why did blindness to you mean white Well, because how she would explain it to me that she just saw things that were
3: blurry and um, white just seemed like this pure vision that I could put on a plate where she would be able to see on a brown plate that there was this white circle or something along those lines. And um, I just thought that. Leading up to, again, once she was able to see all the bright colors, it would be so dramatic. Just, you know, whites and beiges and browns and leading up to every color that there possibly was. I thought it made more of a statement
2: about, you know, kind of her transition. And how did she deal with food and eating and enjoying it when she couldn't see it? I think
3: it was hard because especially being as independent as she was and having to, you know, have someone cut her food up for her. Like, she just wasn't used to a lot of things. And she felt uncomfortable going to places where she didn't know where she was going. So she didn't go out as much. Um, her husband cooked for her a lot at home. If she was with me, we kind of, you know, I'd hold her hand and we'd go. And she felt more comfortable, but I would cook for her at home. So I think that with food, she wanted the things that comforted her. She wanted things that I would make for her. But
2: going to a new place, definitely, she was a little, a little standoffish about Understandably, yeah, I, I mean, totally, it's pretty great to just conquer the walk to the office. and, yeah. and what what is her job? She uh, runs all of the um, libraries
3: in LA, so she gets the grants. Like she was just in Washington D.C. fighting to get back the money that she raised a two million dollars with Dianne Feinstein because the administration's trying to take it away, and uh, you know, utilize it somewhere else. And she was just like, you yeah, know, and she conquered that and the money got back into the system because it it gives the programs for the kids like the art programs the you know people who can't afford internet she's putting those in into place
2: so when you were cooking for someone who you who couldn't see i mean and your mom uh how did it change the way that you thought about food sort of forever you know because i think we all know that cliche like we eat with our eyes first, but did it rearrange those molecules in your brain to say, like, we actually eat with our nose first, or we eat with, you know, something else?
3: Yeah, no, for sure, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't sit there and close my eyes and think about it, but, like, I love eating with my hands. I love smelling over a dish, over a broth, and and thinking about what I you know, think is in that bowl of pho um, or whatever it is. And um, I really wanted the thought that people obviously always want to look beautiful, and that's what we strive to do. But in the end, you want you know, to have fun with it and pick it up with your hands and think about what that feels like and, you know, to smell it. And all those things just kind of came into when I write a menu how could we interweave that in so it's not just about what you're looking at? Maybe something's gonna be covered up and then it's a surprise and, you know, just uh,
2: creating like a story with it. And that, that sense of smell, because there are, there's those dinners where people are sort of blindfolded. Yes. Um, I don't know how much eating they do with their, their hands. Certainly tons of cultures eat with their hands all the time. I mean, we're the prissy ones who, you know, need forks and knives. Exactly.
3: Um, well, our reflection courses are made to not have silverware. So when you go into the next, a lot of it would be in a broth cup or it's a, you know, a little bonbon that's on a plate and you pick it up with your hand and there's definitely some people who have to come over and bring them a fork and knife or a little napkin, but for the most part, we want people to engage and and touch and think about it and, you know, feel the textures and then eat it and and it's a a different thought process and it gets you starting to think about, you know, other parts of the produce and like how you can utilize it and,
2: you know, the temperature of it and I think all those are important. So, In terms of um, the reflection course, I know what you're talking about, but let's talk about that a little bit more because one of the things that you care about a lot is no waste, using every part of an animal, every part of a vegetable, um, aging, the aging process, which can preserve some things for later. Uh, Tell me about your thoughts on the reflection course and how that came to be.
3: It was, I think, reflection courses just kind of came throughout multiple different, like, paths. Uh, A lot working for chefs um, as a chef or as a sous chef where they're like, you're going to have to utilize this product. And I would be (laughs) like, great, beet greens. What am I going to do with those? And, you know, here's 10 pounds of beet greens that you have to deal with every day. Okay, well, this is normally thrown away. Let's try to make a roulade out of it. Or So it's – and then being in California, seeing what's going on in the world – climate change, all these things, we want to make sure that we are, I mean, we have a voice as chefs and, and we don't want to hit someone over the head and educate them like while they're eating. But like, if you can make something delicious with something that you would have thrown away, working for David Kinch and Jeremy definitely made, you know, this gotten embedded in my brain. Um, It takes a long time to grow a radish. So if you're going to throw away the greens you're, it's it it's a waste like try to find a way just like if you kill an animal and you want to utilize all the parts you should feel the same way about a carrot and I think that I try to apply that as long as I can make it delicious I should try to utilize everything I can and and the reflection to be able to utilize something that we might have thrown away or you know you always want to edit yourself and as a chef because you could put 30 things on a plate but you know you need to like I always need to tell myself edit 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 but I don't want to throw anything away. So the reflection was like a good way to be able to do that and create the conversation about something that they just ate so they can still kind of think about the prior course, think about what's coming next, and have a conversation about, you know, waste in the world. The unromantic version of it too is like, it. there's only three of us in the kitchen and we do 10 courses and it's, it's a lot for such a small amount of a crew. And uh, sometimes the reflection course, it's an easy plate. It goes out it keeps the guests entertained in that little bit of a time that could have been a five-minute wait. Now it's like a two-minute wait. And then also, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of different ways that we could um, utilize the reflection as not only just, you know, the educational part, but as, you know, making the servers be able to have time to go and pour that wine. It's, it's, it's adding to the, the thought of the business, too, and making people's perception of
2: value more of what they're getting. Did I read that you kept the price the same and doubled the courses? Yes. And is that, is the doubling adding the reflections?
3: Yes. Well, since we opened, we've added bread courses. So we do two bread courses, takeaways and miniards. plus we added the five reflection. We're in the process of probably raising it around $20 just because in the three years we've been open, minimum wage has gone up multiple times, which we've already uh, given back to our staff because we wanted to see how we would do um, when it does go into effect in July, Uh, you know product the farms with the drought everything went up Um, so we've been trying to give more but also you know we're a business and we need to survive and we want to make sure that our staff we pay 100% of our health insurance they you know we want to make sure they come in it too we want to make sure that they have lives outside of this so they're healthy and happy and all of that unfortunately costs money so we need to make sure that we can like sustain it so people do have a place to come to work so we're looking at raising about $20 and, you know, we're a little scared about it, but we think that it's worth it. And we, we are putting out product, um, and an experience that's, that's worth it. That's so special.
2: And you mentioned that you have an all uh, women team. Yes. Is that still true? Yes. Cause I, it was from the beginning. Um, for the past almost year and a half,
3: I've had all women. Um, and it's, it's super random. It's not like, that's what I set out to do but I think that women are definitely attracted uh, to working for a woman chef Um, especially in the last few years with me too and all the things that have been coming out at restaurants Uh, it's a safe place Um, and I think that you know we like I said we try to We are a family it sounds so cheesy, but you know, I just, we were here cooking at the James Beard house. I brought them with me so they could experience it. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that they are able to put up dishes to start getting creative. We want to give them the stepping stones to be successful women after me. And it's really important. I've really focused on becoming a teacher for sure. And the women that are in my kitchen are amazing and
2: they're they're big fans of UPS. They're like so excited. I'm on your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, what energy what is the difference in energy that comes from them because I can see how you as a leader um, there's a lot of responsibility that you feel to to them to help them grow and to be a good a good mentor which is so lacking I mean I, I talk to a lot of people I do a lot of coaching now and the thing I hear most often in every industry that people come from is the lack of mentoring so I feel like you've you're really focused on that, which is so important. But I think it must work the other way as well. Like, what do you get, and what does the diner get, and what does the food experience get from having an all-woman team?
3: Well, they care. They have so much passion. And I don't even want to just say it's because they're women, but there is this, you know, motherly vibe. This we all take care of each other. We come in. We, you know, we sit down. We have a meeting. We make sure we, you know, we're looking at each other in the eyes. We talk about their night before. If someone's sick, we tell them to go home. We cover their station. We um, talk about what the day is going to look like how we can each help each other it's a constant conversation there's a lot of talking there's a lot of sit downs so there's a lot of <laughs> lot of emotions uh, sometimes can be draining but I mean in the end it's worth so much more because they are putting 150% of their energy into Nightbird and I am trying to put 150% of my energy into them
2: um, and it's and it's working <laughs> and in, in terms of how you think that women can move forward, like after you, do you, do you have visions for the people who come through your kitchen? Like, like, what do you see in the future? I mean, I, whenever we do the hiring process,
3: I'm constantly thinking of, well, A, what can this person teach me as well, as well as what can I teach them? And what can I do to help them grow to step into the next place that they're going to? And it's the first thing I ask them. So what, what are your goals? What do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? Where are you going to go? And how can I help you get there? And I definitely. I mean, I'm not even trying to like toot my own horn or pat myself on the back, but like the second that someone's ready to move on to the next step, I want to help them find a job, even if it puts me in the weeds. It just happened with one of my cooks. She was ready to step into a sous chef role, but just not with us. And you know, helped her find a job. I thought it was important, and I just started working that station until we could find another person to come in. And uh, one of my old cooks, I'm letting her do pop ups at the restaurant and let her experience like how she's trying to open a restaurant. So we want to be there, me and my partner, constantly for the people who have come through because it, their success is our success. In the end, it's it's always a bummer when you look at you know a resume that. And none of the restaurants are there anymore. Like, I want to make sure that I can still sustain and that the people that are I'm teaching will have something to look back on and that they're going to create something that's going to be there for a long time. And
2: and whatever I can do to support that is, you know, it's on the top of my list. So you have a, a partner um, in the business and in life Yes. who's a man. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so there is some testosterone <laughs> in the business. Yes. Uh, at the In the front of the house. Um. And his name's Ron Boyd. And his adoration of you and the restaurant is so moving and so sweet. Thank um, you. I mean, yeah, I, he's amazing. He's a, my blankie.
3: <laughs> that's what I that's what I call him. He's like my comfort system. This is the first time I've done an event where he didn't come because we've ne- never both been away from the restaurant at the same time. So it was uh it was hard, but luckily I had my girls to support me. But yeah, no he um has was a chef his whole life. Since he was 12, his parents owned a small diner out in San Francisco out in the avenues, and so he's always been in a restaurant and he, you know, made we made the choice for him to step and be in the front of the house, which he's never done before, and he's stepping up and doing amazing and I think we're getting a lot of accolades in the bar uh, and the wine because he can be creative. And as a chef, you know, you can be creative in the front of the house, but not, like, in the back. And so he puts his energy towards that. And it's, it's nice to have someone you trust and know that it's going to get done. Like, my girl's flight got uh, delayed yesterday, six hours. They didn't get to the restaurant until five minutes before service. He was in the kitchen prepping out the entire restaurant with a friend put everything and I can I mean he can do it. He's a chef and he that's what he does. And if I'm not saying that another GM wouldn't have been able to do that, but I don't know who would have been able to do that. <laughs> and
2: but he um It was because of an accident or that he ended up making this transition.
3: Yeah, he, um, well, being, he's like 6'4", big guy, and uh, being in a kitchen his whole life, being bent over, um, his bones started to deteriorate and he had to get neck surgery, and it was pretty aggressive, and um, I think that, you know, he just, his body just was like, let me take a little bit of a break. He still is an amazing chef. He's the best chef I've ever worked with for, he cooks at home for sure and uh but that definitely he just couldn't be in the kitchen like 18 hours which is what sometimes it it takes as a chef which is hard and i care more about his health and well-being than anything else so he's in the front now but he still works
2: really long hours <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he does but was that a i mean we're talking about you but i like i'm so curious was that emotionally hard for him to say, you know what, like my neck and my body is telling me I can't do this. So I am going to stop and find another role. Like, was that hard for the two of you? Was that hard for him? Because then you get to have the job that he's amazing at. I know. I
3: think... You know, I think it's hard, and I think he's always been humble. He's always been a behind-the-scenes guy in all of the restaurants. You know, he's gotten the two Michelin stars. He's gotten the rising star chef. He's gotten all those things. He's super talented, and I think everyone in the business respects him immensely. But he never got that, like, I wish that he could be in the spotlight. I wish that he could sometimes take over my role because he deserves it. But I think that he, his, his goals have changed in age, and with this accident, or with the, the surgery that happened, and um, now it's more about – how are we going to be okay later in our life? What can we do together to build our, you know, brand and grow? And he's thinking like more like a grown up, I guess. But uh, yeah, I think definitely sometimes you can see it. it. He's more of a person that should be in the back of the house, but he's doing a great job in the front. But it, it's hard. The front of the house is really hard. I give mad respect to all like servers and GMs who can just put on that face and
2: do it every day because it's it's a tough job. Seems like a. I mean. Everything in a restaurant seems to me like a tough job, so (laughs) I'm not even going to weigh front versus back. But I'm just weighing in my mind, like, dream, you know, your dream and you're living your dream and then facing a different reality and how hard that is for for anyone. But then when you're good at it, and for him he gets to build a future and do it with someone he loves, I'm sure that's very gratifying as well.
3: And we do talk about, like, you know, the next spot, like, it, it could be something where he could create it and put someone in place, so it still is him living creatively,
2: just not abusing his body uh, like he can't anymore. I mean, it's interesting because it brings us, us back to this notion of limitations and making the most of limitations. With your um, mother and her eyesight, a huge limitation, and yet she was still doing her job. She's, like, fighting Washington, although now she has her sight back. But yeah. she, you know relinquish none of that fierceness and Ron neck surgery can't do what he was going to do but within those limitations he did something else and brought his creativity to it I mean there's something about the world of the kitchen or the like the world in which we live where the limitations don't have to limit us yeah they almost like make you stronger I mean we
3: you can't just give up, um, for multiple reasons. And I, when I look at my mom, I hope to, you know, be as strong as her one day. Sometimes I, I don't feel that strong and I call her for strength and, and wisdom and thought. And she feels the same way. She feels that sometimes she's not strong and she looks at me and it's just like, we try to take these faults and things that are happening, you know the unfortunateness that might happen in our life, like with Ron and and we try to
2: turn it around and make something out of it. And what are the things where you turn to her? Like the, what are the rough patches that have been, you know, struggles for you um, in this, in this business or the life you live? You know, it's weird. I feel like I was, it's, I feel like
3: sometimes I was stronger when I was younger. I mean, that's because the, the issues that I dealt with weren't as life- You know, changing. Like, I feel like sometimes up here, like I am responsible for my whole staff. I'm, you know, out there, kind of in the spotlight, open to criticism. All I want to do is make people happy, and it's tough every day. And I, I used to, like I said, yeah, I think when I was younger, I just it came right off me. And now it's I'm more sensitive because I feel like there's more weight of the world on me. Like, okay, well, if I get that negative review, is are someone not going to come to my restaurant because of it? If, um, you know, these all these things are difficult, and I definitely call her about that when I am struggling with. I mean pretty much anything but as of late just um, trying to make sure that we can run a successful business in a really tough environment in San Francisco and how can I make um, choices in the right way that don't bend what I feel the quality of my business should be uh, but at the same time making sure that I make money but our voice is being heard correctly and I just lean on her as a sounding board for sure. Same with Ron.
2: Ron is my constant sounding board. And has there ever been anything else that you have wanted to do? Because you've been cooking. I mean, you went to cooking school in California. You grew up in California. You've been cooking in California. I know you like you went to Chicago for a like really a minute. brief... Like yeah, a Yeah, one <laughs> winter. That was enough. <laughs> yeah. One winter. Uh, but, but has anything else ever sort of uh, piqued your curiosity? Like, do you do something in tandem? I mean, what before I decided fully to commit to a
3: restaurant even though I worked in restaurants in high school was definitely writing I think that it just was in my blood from my mom and I really loved the idea to put how I feel like in words same way I think I put on a plate it is definitely you're putting your like self out there like any artist um, and I think the reason why I haven't totally kind of come out yet with uh, my writing would be that it's it's emotional and I I I'm running a business, which takes up a lot of my time and energy, and sometimes I'm exhausted. But I think that uh, you know, I just need to get used to putting my words out there and letting people hear them um, the same way that they see
2: when they come to the restaurant and eat the food. And what's the, what are the stories or what are the emotions that you want to convey in your writing that we'll see when you decide to <laughs> share? But the stories
3: that I start and that I've been are you know, they're all real life experiences for the most part and like opinions and thoughts and where I want to see things go. It's a lot about, I don't want to say education, but like letting people open up to see like what I'm going through, what our business is going through, what restaurants, what that's such a, our industry as a whole, farmers and, you know, bartenders and winemakers, there, there's so many things that go into everything and just, there's so many stories to be told and, and just to see through my eyes, like what that is, I think would be what I would want.
2: So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about food, food, food. So stay with us.
1: This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L-stop. It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 100 Bogart's rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718 362 3539.
2: Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, my guest is Kim Alter from Nightbird in Oakland. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. We were talking for a minute during the break. Sorry, people. There was a break, and we got to <laughs> talk off mic uh, about how you like loved the numbers, and you didn't go to a traditional college. No, which
3: definitely my dad was upset about and now that I think about it, I wish I might have w- would have listened to them and gone to college so I would have had like a little bit of a backup plan in case like something ever happens to me but uh yeah I think working for chefs in the past and I found that if I make my numbers they kind of leave me alone like if the food's good and people are happy and you're like falling below what we're budgeted and money's coming in it makes you kind of be able to do what you want to
2: do and you know I want to do what I want to do. uh. (laughs) But I'm curious about the no college. Like, was that a hard decision? Was that a moment where, you know, well, your mother seems to have had endless belief in you, so I'm sure, I imagine she was like... She was a little upset, not going to lie. She was kind
3: of like, I think my thing was when I was... At Laguna, uh, it was very artsy, and, you know, all my friends were artists, and a lot of them weren't doing the traditional, and the school itself wasn't traditional, the town itself wasn't traditional, and I started, you know, thinking I was kind of punk rock, and I didn't want to, I didn't believe in SATs at the time. I'm like, how can someone judge me based on an essay? Uh, I want to just, like, work with my hands. I want to be creative. I want to do all these things, and, and I was lucky enough to work in some restaurants, and it it was awesome. I loved that that feeling every night and I just you know I, right after I graduated I moved up to San Francisco and started working at Acarello and went to the CCA and it
2: just yeah and was, here we are now. And do you ever feel like there's things that you could have learned that you wish you had and that you can in the future? I
3: mean I feel like I sh- can, will, and learn every day for sure. But uh, could I ever go back to college? I don't know about that. I, I mean, taking a time. class in oh, you know yeah. like now that biology. I'll... I mean, you you love fermentation like it just yes seems... for sure. And I'm actually looking into it, even though it's really hard right now with like timing. But uh, it's free in San Francisco, uh, the city. The college and there's amazing classes like my friends take uh ceramics and uh there are like nutrition classes and there's cooking classes and you can get like small degrees so I definitely every every semester it comes to my house and I'm like I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this and then unfortunately real life comes in and I can't but I am
2: trying to find a light at the end of the tunnel where I can do that and do it for free too which is amazing that would be amazing uh, you were Talking about like one of the courses that would potentially interest you is nutrition, and I'm curious about uh, what you do to take care of yourself. You know, you've watched your partner have terrible issues with his neck because of, you know, being hunched over as a chef. What is it that you do to take care of yourself? Well, I definitely am not
3: on the level that I should be, or I was before the restaurant opened. I was running and doing bar, and you know, really focusing on me. Um, but as of late, I mean, acupuncture is something that I can tell if I don't do it once a week. Emotionally, I feel it. My body feels it. Um, Also, we have recently cut out gluten and sugar for the most part, which is definitely, like... I mean, I don't not taste something when I'm at the restaurant, but I don't go to it and I try to really just, you know, I obviously go to the farmer's market every day, so we're very healthy. We don't cook with a ton of fat and we try to use different types of fats um, that are a little bit healthier and I just think it really shines the ingredients anyway, so it's kind of how I always lean when I'm cooking, so it's not like a big change, but uh, we try to, this sounds ridiculous, but just every day before service, we walk around four blocks just to breathe some air and like... You know, sometimes we'll talk about what what we're walking into, me and my partner. And sometimes we just talk about our dog and, like, you know, try to have, like, a real-life moment. We always, you know, say hi to the restaurants because it's a really strong community in Hayes Valley. I'm really lucky to be next to, like, the Riches and, like, 20th Century and uh, Moncier. There's so many amazing restaurants with great chefs, and they're all like-minded. So, you know, we walk around, we say hi, see how they're doing, and then go back into the restaurant. I think that really just, like, sets me up to, like, get
2: energy for the next turn, basically. And what about the emotions? Like you were saying, there's a lot of emotions. There's emotions in your writing. There's emotions in your food. Um, there's emotions. Emotions run high because well, partly it's an all-women staff. The emotions yes. run very high with men as well, but yes. just in a different way. Yes. To, yes. Yes. to, be, to be clear. Yeah. Um, but what do you do with like those emotions?
3: I think that I have to work at it and I really try to apply those emotions to like the cooking in a sense and like putting towards like my energy efforts and to what we're doing and to teaching the girls and trying to like, I really have to take a breath sometimes and if I'm upset or something to go the way that it should, it's like, okay, well, how can we fix this problem and like really put all my energy towards making it good, right quickly and trying not to keep it bottled up so when I go home, it's not like just like, uh, you know, you just, you need to... It's a it's a everyday working on me, trying not to bottle up emotions, trying to like let things breathe, and um, it's hard. But I try to put it out through the food in at least in
2: a good way. Right. Sometimes people say you can taste the emotion in the food. I'm sure that your overwhelming emotion is love. So for sure. Um, but yeah, when we have bad days, I feel like it totally
3: can see it. I know if there is a like a flux of maybe two reviews where people are like. Eh. I know what day that was. It was a day that all the girls and I, like, fell down a hill or something happened with, you know, a sauce, and it it shows in the food, and I feel like... So we try not to have that at all. If there's ever an issue, we don't dance around it. I'm like, go outside with me right now. I'm like, what's the problem? Is it here? Is it home? What can we do? Because it's not okay right
2: now. So it's we talk a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk um, a little bit about the the food. I am fascinated by your approach to... With techniques, Um, for example, burning a kaffir lime, right? So you would put a kaffir lime in an oven at five hundred, is that right? And then it comes out like a charred, yeah, kaffir lime. Well, what's
3: really interesting about the kaffir limes, which we get from K and J Farms, which is this amazing farm, and there's so much essential oils in them that when you burn them, the outside still has all this beautiful flavor and smell, and you just grate it over the top of the plate, and just you don't taste burn. It's just these oils that have like turned into not carbon necessarily, but that, and we also, I mean, we burn right now on the color menu, we have beets. So we make beet charcoal and then we we set them on fire and smoke them and then roast the beets in the smoke. So that beet smoke goes into the baby beets. Um, I love utilizing those like little small techniques that change the flavor of something. What makes people think like, what is that? Um, that's what we like. We don't want to be, we're very minimalistic on the menu. We don't want to be pretentious, but we want people to feel comfortable and doing those little things kind of make them start thinking and talking about
2: what it is like why does it taste like that and I love that I love the way you think about salt because to me salt is salt I mean I use you know kosher salt and Mm -hmm. I've got like my my go-to but tell us about the way that you think about salt and curing things I mean and also variety like Using soy instead of salt, or
3: yeah, for sure. I mean, soys and shiokojis and salts and misos are all things that I think about to apply to vegetables to either change their texture, uh, obviously, I add umami, uh, all the things that just give something a deeper flavor. Uh, we, the owner of Hodo Soy, came in the other day and I had some tofu that I was aging in miso that was a year old, and I opened it up, took it out, and it was like blue cheese. And it's like, so, there's a lot of weird projects that I start. A lot in my house, too, Ron's always getting pissed off because they'll be like, this cream is two years old. I'm like, yeah, but what if it turns into something amazing? Like, let it just sit in that glass jar and let's see what happens. Um, And I kind of do that along with with the aging process. It's just kind of like figuring things out and trying to, I guess, create something that's just, uh, not that it hasn't been done before because, you know, what hasn't been done before in this industry and in these centuries, but I just think it's so interesting to watch the process of how alcohol or vinegar or salt or water changes the texture of everything. We have a, we ferment most of the stuff at my house just because our restaurant's so small, like making kimchi and fermenting grains and a lot of it came from health too. I have a lot of stomach issues um, from stress and just like it changes the way I eat so I use a lot of probiotics. I use a lot of fermentation, a lot of uh, things to help put flora back in my body and so I wanted to apply that to how I cook and it obviously adds flavor.
2: And um, I was fascinated by the notion of I don't think marinate's the right word, but marinating the vegetables in miso? Aging,
3: marinating, yeah. Aging. We we get miso, and then we just put the vegetables in it, and, you know, from two days to, like, three weeks, and it'll, you can see the, the change of... It's almost like cooking it, in a sense, or like an escabeche, where it's, like, curing it from the uh, outside in, and it's just... You can see the progression of it, and the flavor. It's not overwhelming. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do, because I love miso, and I love vegetables. So, turning it... At, A lot of the things about thinking of it as, like, a protein then, or, like, turning it into, like, a more meat flavor or, like, more umami and then, like, roasting them like a piece of meat. Definitely thoughts that came from, like, working with Jeremy at Ubuntu, for sure. And then you would take the leftover miso and then use that again. We will roast it and then uh, turn it... Right now we have a miso banyakata butter. So we roast the miso for a couple hours above heat, and then we whip it into butter that we make in the restaurant, and then it's served with, like, a milk bread. So... Again, yeah, no waste, and or we could utilize it in like a a, su- a broth um, kind of a substitute. But for the most part, we're utilizing it
2: in butter right now, and uh, an acid. You know, so I'm like oh, I'm hitting the the highlights here, right? Mm-hmm. Which is um, salt, acid, heat. But uh, what are your thoughts on acid? Because I know you said that you um, like a banyuls vinegar. I love banyuls rather than a balsamic, which. Um, I think for sugar
3: content for me. I mean, when I think about acid, I think about it, especially in cocktails. So we prep everything for the bar. And a lot of it is utilization of what we can't use that, you know, um, like strawberries, if we make a syrup out of it, we utilize the strawberries in there and then adding acid and adding like a malic acid or a citric acid to like change the flavor. So there's balance like cocktails are just like food. There needs to be good salinity, acidity, and for me I like the acidity just to brighten up rich sauces so it's not heavy. I love French food. I love like that, but how we cook is more about brightness and lightness, I think. And acid obviously brings that to the to the forefront. And what about heat? Spice. Spice. is very... I mean, I'll do... Right now, um, we have, like, koshus, so we get kumquats when they're in season from one of our farmers, and then we uh, get jalapenos and salt, ferment them, and then make it so it's like a little sauce on top of the scallop, actually, on our orange course. Um, but going back to my stomach issues, heating me... <laughs> It struggles the next day. So I never want to overwhelm the palate uh, when we're cooking. And when you're doing a tasting menu, I never would want to blow anything out. So there's like little hints like in Koshu's where
2: there's jalapenos or serranos, but it's very subtle and it won't overwhelm. It sounds like anyone who comes and eats in your restaurant will end up with sort of better flora when they leave. Yes. So um, I end the show with two questions. One is, uh, what can you teach me that is something that you would – really teach me with your hands, but here we are with audio. So you have to walk me through the steps. And, um, I mean, I've been taught all kinds of things like how to get, um, uh, stains out of white clothes or how to fold pants, um, how to, how to talk into a microphone, which was fascinating since that's what I'm doing here is talking into a microphone. Um, what can you teach me? I feel like you know a lot of things so I'm trying to think like <laughs> what wouldn't you
3: know like based on me following you for the last 10 years and thinking and, uh, and seeing all the places you've been I, I don't even I'm trying to think the first thing that came to mind and I don't know why it's probably because I'm exhausted and might have had a couple drinks last night was I think about like I almost want to want to teach you like how to clean a piece of uh, fruit or vegetables but that's I'm, awesome <laughs> do it I'd love
2: that that's helpful Okay, Um, I'm trying because I'm actually really, to be honest, I'm super lazy. Like, I get I get my fruit and vegetables mostly at the farmers market, um, but then I just like do a super fast rinse. I'm like, it's fine. I'm not gonna die, but I think that's really not the best. So please. Well, I mean, we get
3: everything from the farmer's market and you know what things are grown in. So we always, uh, with your hands, I would, you know, grab the fruit and vegetables, wash them and then whole like, let's say a strawberry with your hand and using and in a twist, turn on it to pull out the top part and then just cutting it in half and making it a perfect little bite would be something that comes to mind. But I know that you would know how to do that. So I'm gonna have to get back to you and send you an email, I think, <laughs> of like something I could
2: possibly teach you. But is there any trick to washing? Because actually there. There are ways, like, you know, you put the plug in the bottom of the sink and you fill it all with water and you.
3: Well, with strawberries, we do it in a bowl and we let them float for a while and kind of like mess them up so some of the seeds come out. So if you were to be able, you know, people don't want seeds in their mouth when they are doing um, their, a tasting menu. So uh, at Manresa, he used to do this strawberry gazpacho and we would literally almost like de seed strawberries and putting them in um, the cold water and kind of moving them around and letting them float and letting them come out. And something, maybe a trick. Going to the farmer's market so much, there's a lots of mites and, and things on, um, like, brassicas. And putting them in, in a bowl with cold water, a little bit of vinegar, mushing them around, kind of floats them to the top, and then taking them out, and then you can eat the cauliflower without having to throw it away. Because a lot of times people open up, they see all the bugs, they throw it away. Just add a little bit of
2: vinegar and throw it around in the cold water, and it cleans it all off. I think that's a great lesson. You do not okay. have to email me. Oh, God. <laughs> that's great. And um, the last is I... I'd love to do a shout-out broadly to a woman who inspires you, who's in the hospitality industry, who doesn't get enough attention. And um, so I'm curious who that would be.
3: This is going to sound weird because she has two Michelin stars and she's amazing, but I really feel Suzette Gresham does not get the acclaim um, that she deserves. She owns Acarello in San Francisco, and I i don't know. I—I I, She... I feel kind of sometimes gets passed over because she's physically in the kitchen still at her, you know, how old is she? I don't know if I should say it on (laughs) that. We'll say like almost 60, uh, 30 years next month, I think at Acarello and she is on the line teaching cooks and being that role model and that mentor that she was to me 20 years ago. So I think that, uh, she deserves all the love.
2: That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining me on speaking broadly. I loved, um, I loved having you and hearing about the, the color and your mother's amazing recovery in the way that it has influenced your food. And I can't wait to get out there and Thank go to you. Nightbird.
3: I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
2: Okay. So if people want to find you, how do they find you on social?
3: Um, okay. NightbirdRestaurant.com is our restaurant. You can make reservations. Um, my personal, uh, I'm terrible at social media and you get better at it would be Kim alter
2: and, uh, Nightbird SF on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And you guys know where to find me at Speaking Broadly. I want to thank uh, Matt Patterson for his excellent engineering skills today and Nina for her help forever and always. Um, Have a great week, guys, and we'll be back at you next week.
0: Thanks for
1: listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.